10 things that you want to be and go find 10 people that do those things and and ask them to, to take you to lunch or, or ask if you can go to lunch with them. More often than not, you're going to get a free lunch. They're, <laughs> yeah. they're, and and people love to talk about what they do. They, yeah. they absolutely yeah. do. And you're going to learn so much more by asking somebody that does it. Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. Today we have Bob Vito, a very, very experienced high-level executive uh, who served a lot of different roles throughout the medical device industry, the music industry. He's had a very diverse background. He's been around the block. He's, he's, just, he's, he's seen it all, and he's been able to lead a variety of different people in different companies. He describes his background in navigating through the medical device industry, how important it is to stay knowledgeable about your company and what's happening in it, regardless of what area of the company you're in. Next, he describes his leadership experience as the CEO for a landscape and specialty tool company, uh, the CFO for Steinway & Sons, a piano company, and talks about some cool innovations that are happening within the piano industry. Um, and then he also talks about the key elements of what makes a leader, how he got to where he's at, and what he's learned from other mentors along the way. So he had a lot of good things to say about that. So Slager, what else did we get into? Yeah, I... Uh... I actually remember when we were doing this interview, I was grinning ear to ear because I was so just like excited. Everything he was sharing and a great storyteller too, by the way, just mm-hmm. phenomenal the way he, he talked about his experiences. And so this is the first time I ever met him. Tim, you've known him growing up, golfing with him. So I love going in uh, and not having met the person before. But yeah, he, he really dives in deeper into uh, how important it is to stay present in your family's lives. And talks about kind of the difficulties that he had with that while he lived in New York City, and that was when he was with Steinway and Sons, as as you mentioned before, Tim. Um, he was there for two years while his family was back in the Midwest. So he really talks about uh, some of the key ingredients that helped them uh, really kind of make it through, because you know that that wasn't an easy thing for him or his entire family. Then we end on his experience with Ambassador Capital Group. That's what he's currently into. And he talks about Remedy Live, which we, we ride for a while because that was so crucial um, to learn how Remedy Live is changing the game for suicide awareness within teenagers and schools and accomplishing one of the hardest missions with that kind of talk, which is getting the conversation started and how they're using technology to do so, uh, the fun interaction that they create with it, but also getting good valuable data on how people are actually feeling that they might not know how to tell everyone else about. So they're really doing a great job on getting that conversation started and learning a little more about mental health and suicide awareness. So this one is absolutely electric. Uh, His storytelling is unreal captivating. So you guys are gonna get a ton out of this episode. I'm going to go back and listen to a few more times just because it was that good. And please, if you do enjoy the show, you've been getting some value, head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and review. It might take you a minute, maybe two tops, Um, but we would really, really appreciate that. And then after you do that, DM us on Instagram, let us know you've done so, what your name is, um, and then your mailing address, and we will get that out to you for free. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are with Bob Vito. 
Bob Vito, welcome to the show. I uh, appreciate you having us, especially at your uh, gorgeous home here, by the way. I've not been to Fort Wayne much, actually. Mm. So I know you kind of, it's your neck of the woods. Tim. Yeah, I love that you're right next to a golf course. It's my yeah, favorite part of it. Chestnut Hill is a great course. Yeah, it's a golf course you've played, I believe, mm-hmm. too, right? Yep. yep. But only with irons. So I don't I don't think <laughs> Coach Sparky lets you have a wood on this course. Nah, but, he's yeah. very strategic about <laughs> how, we, how we tee off. So. Well, was, uh, we passed one you said was one of the top in Indiana. Sycamore Hills. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's my that's my home away from home. Okay. Yeah. So that's the one you're going to tomorrow morning. Yes, sir. All right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's sir. awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I got to know Bob, Bob's family and my family. They're they're pretty good friends, but I got to know Bob pretty well through the golf course arena. And when I worked at Stonehenge as a as a bag boy and met met him there and really got to know him there. Worked at Biomet with him. So cool. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to get to talk to you today. So yeah, well, it's great to great to uh, to put a face with your uh, your voice, Colin. And yeah, your name. likewise. And uh, good to see Tim always. And Tim's really humble. He he got to know me on the golf course when he he uh, he actually nearly won the club championship. And then the uh, the big dilemma was was he old enough to yeah. win the club championship? No kidding. But, uh, yeah. You never told me that. <laughs> no, it's yeah. Humble, humble Tim. Yeah. <laughs> but that's cool. So Bob, if you want to, I know you've had a lot of different professional experiences. So I guess if you want to just run through like just br- briefly the different stops you've had, just kind of your path to to what to where you are now. If you want to just go through that. Yeah, yeah, we we won't take all night doing it, but uh, <laughs> it's 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 been a journey. And you know, a lot of times, you know, I look back at the resume and think, oh my gosh. Um, and I think I've I've asked or been asked, you know, are you running for something or are you chasing something? And it's probably more the latter. You know, I, I've, I've chased a career and, you know, came out of school. I went to Manchester College and got a uh, uh, degree in, in finance and accounting and also had a two-year degree in, in computer applications. I, I actually went there to be a computer major and then switched out okay. and uh, realized that uh, that probably wasn't what I wanted to do every day, all day. Uh, but I still needed to have some computer um, and mind and, and experience and, and knowledge. So started in public accounting, worked for uh, Pricewaterhouse for uh, about six busy seasons. And you know that equated to um, five years um, from, a, from a sequence perspective, but it se- seemed like about you know, seven or eight years because we worked <laughs> a lot of overtime. Yeah. Uh, had a great client base, mostly in the manufacturing scene. And one of my clients uh, was in the orthopedic scene and uh, Zimmer. And I got a chance to uh, to do like a lot of public accountants and, and left public accounting and went into uh, to one of my clients into their finance organization and you know the classic rest is history. I, I've spent the vast majority of my career in orthopedics or healthcare medical devices, um, mostly in in financial capacities. But uh, you know migrating through my career, I've I've had a a range of responsibilities that have included finance and accounting, uh, treasury. Uh, but also branched into um, purchasing, sourcing, even had HR reporting to me at, at one juncture, IT. Um, so really just have been very, very fortunate as I've, I've gone through my career. But jumped from, from Zimmer, uh, actually left the orthopedic space for a short period of time and, and went into automotive uh, in the uh, Honeywell, uh, now Honeywell business, Allied Signal at the time. And paid paid my dues, uh, spent a year there and um, got back out and, and got back into uh, medical devices. And 
And then over the course of the, the next several years, um, we, we moved around a bit. Um, we've been known to do that. At, I think in 30, going on 32 years of marriage, we've, we've moved, I've moved 14 times. My wife wow. has moved 13 times. Wow. Um, but I've worked for, you know, some great companies. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb owned Zimmer when I was with Zimmer, um, was with Johnson and Johnson's, uh, Depew business, um, for, uh, a half a dozen years. We moved overseas with Johnson and Johnson. And uh, we were, uh, were fortunate enough to, uh, to get into Scotland and mm-hmm. um, work for the diabetes business. Um, and then came back um, with yet another orthopedic company with Biomet uh, in a financial capacity. Uh, stayed in that capacity for about six years and then got the opportunity to move over into what we called commercial operations. So still had a, a financial bend, but my responsibilities really entailed uh, being involved with the, the commercial aspect of the business. Um, a lot of inventory um, responsibilities, contract pricing responsibilities, and really just trying to serve the, uh, the distributor network out in the, uh, uh, the industry or in the, um, the sales force. Um, eventually, that, that company was um, go in the midst of going public. Um, I think that a lot of people have, have heard of Biomet and, and uh, in the process of going public, a lot of times, you know, other companies will look at, at the, uh, the business that's going public, and that's exactly what happened with uh, Biomet. And our largest competitor, Zimmer, who I'd worked for again uh, previously, swooped in and, and decided they'd, they'd save us the, uh, the pain and agony of going public and, and just bought us oh, wow. outright. So the business transacted for um, right around $13 billion. So wow. it was a mega deal wow. in, the, uh, in the space. Um, and I took the opportunity at that point to just really evaluate, you know, where I was at in my career. I had already worked for Zimmer on a couple previous occasions, and um, just wasn't sure that third time really felt like the charm to mm-hmm. me. And and so I opted to uh, to go ahead and, and leave the organization. Um, you know, we we'll maybe get into it a little bit later, but you know, I was I was probably a, a little bit. Um, if I look back, I. I I probably wasn't as humble as I could have been at the time. There was a job offered that I, I felt like, yeah, I can do that job, but I can do you know a lot more than that. Um, and I, I should have probably just uh, been a lot more patient um, with, with hindsight, but mm-hmm. at the time um, chose to, uh, to go ahead and depart. And, and that was when I moved to, to Manhattan or to uh, New York for a couple of years and took the Steinway CFO opportunity. Okay. So, so again, it's been a long slog. Came back from Steinway um, after a couple of years out there. We can talk about that. But then really got into the, uh, um, the opportunity to run a business and took a, a, a landscape tool business uh, that was privately owned and had multiple locations. They had bought a, a very, very large competitor. As a matter of fact, it was a little bit of the, uh, the minnow swallowing the whale. And uh, jumped in and, and really tried to help through uh, some of the integration activities that, uh, that really hadn't gone quite so well uh, leading up to, to my arrival. And eventually was given the opportunity to run that business, uh, went from COO to, uh, to the CEO position. And again, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, <clears throat> backtracking a little bit, how crucial through all these roles was your computer background? You switch majors, but keeping that kind of on the side, yeah. how much did that really enhance 
your progression through roles and jobs and um, things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, I would say, you know, probably not as much as you might think it would have um, now with big data. Okay. And, and a lot of that has to do, Colin, I think with the, the time in which I was in my career versus what's there today in the way of technology. Um, it's not that, that the companies I worked for had bad systems, but we didn't have state-of-the-art systems. Sure. And, and in order to, to really be able to use, you know, I think IT or use big data to your advantage, you need to have good data. You know, garbage in is garbage out. Mm-hmm. And, and so it didn't hurt me by any means. I, I think even going into public accounting, it, it, um, it helped propel me. Uh, because at that time we were really just starting to automate some of our work paper documentation and the way that we generated, you know, lead schedules and things like that. So, mm-hmm. um, not being afraid of the computer, uh, which some people were at that time, as hard as that is to imagine. Right. But 30 years ago, you know, it's this this big thing that looks like a sewing machine, and you got to carry <laughs> it around, and it weighs 40 pounds. Um, you know, what the heck is that? Um, well, that, that's called a PC (laughs) and, uh, you know, we had floppy disks and and all kinds of things. The real floppy disks. Exactly. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, it, again, I, I would say it was helpful, um, to, to have skills today. I, I would say it's, it's imperative. I think it's table stakes. Uh, I think to be able to, to move data around and, and twist and turn data, um, you know, folks come and. Uh, into the marketplace today. If you don't know Excel, um, you, you may as well try and find a, a, another job to, uh, to look into because yeah. if, if you can't move data around, you're, you're just not going to survive. Yeah. And you mentioned you spent a lot of your career in the orthopedic industry, medical device. What, what kind of drew you to that? What interested you in that at first? Yeah. What brought you to that? You know, it's it's interesting. It it was an easy transfer or transition, let's put it that way, because I'd spent multiple years on the account at at Zimmer. Mm -hmm. But I think the real attraction for me was to see what what that product was able to do um, to change people's lives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's just it's such a a feel good feeling to to know that, uh, you know, somebody's aching. You know, their life is, their quality of life is, is not what they've been accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this orthopedic surgeon shows up and, uh, and they put some metal and plastic in the body and, and voila, their, their life is restored. Mm-hmm. And, and so to be a part of a company that was really on the cutting edge of that, pun intended, um, but, but uh, literally to, uh, you know, to go in and, and you know, take away that, that osteo arthritic bone and replace that with metal and plastic and to restore that quality of life, remove the pain that, mm-hmm. uh, that patients are in. It, it, it really was a, a very rewarding experience. Now, the other thing I would say is it was a rocket ship at the time. The, you know, we just seemingly couldn't make enough product fast enough. Mm. Um, the, uh, the number of procedures that were being done were just, you know, astronomical. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I remember this is an interesting um, memory of my audit days. You know, you usually used to test for under accruals on the balance sheet. You're, you're wanting to see whether or not the company is is fully uh, reserved for all the things that, that they actually could have in the way of liabilities. When we audited Zimmer back then, because they were experiencing so much growth, we would actually audit for over accruals mm. because oh, wow. they were making so much money 
that um, that they were they were just putting accruals on the balance sheet for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I, I can't say again that, that we found things where they were malicious, but right. it was just a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. And you think about so many companies today, it's it's you know making earnings, making earnings. It's all about you know how do you, how do we make the ends meet? And uh, that was a period of time where. You know that industry was was just going gangbusters. Wow. What a problem to have! Too much cash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and why do you think like what, what when was this and like why do why do you think it was? Did you ever think about like the story behind it? Just nature of the industry. Yeah, I, th- I think um, you know at that time you know orthopedics was still relatively new. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, hips and knees were being done, but um, the uh, the healthcare market was really just starting to understand and appreciate. The, the benefit that could could mm-hmm. really come from restoring that that joint mm-hmm. and uh, you know without getting in too too deep on the, the whole healthcare system but you know it's it's a it's a vicious cycle if if you have an achy joint the thing that you don't want to do is to to exercise and if you don't exercise guess what you you potentially put on weight, mm-hmm. at least if you eat like I do. And, <laughs> and, and it, it just... I don't be- know, Bob, you're looking pretty good, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it just becomes a, a vicious cycle that then the next thing you know, you've got comorbidities and you know, you've got diabetes or you've got mm-hmm. heart issues, blood pressure issues, and, and it just becomes a, a really, really bad cycle. Mm-hmm. So for patients to realize that they could have their joint replaced, restore their quality of life, and to go on with a healthier lifestyle was 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 really intriguing, and I mm-hmm. think that that even persists still today. There's mm-hmm. there's never been you know in the last thirty years a, a full fledged cure for osteoarthritis. Um, I think we're doing a lot of things these days that we didn't do thirty years ago with biologics. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, the the business it was just the other thing that was interesting was you know pricing in the marketplace. You know back then you know I think you could you could uh, increase prices year after year, and, mm-hmm. and you really didn't think twice about it. Huh. Well, that clearly does not happen in today's right. healthcare market. Right. Yeah. Just so it's just a very, very different business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, working at like a big corporate company, and there's there's so many moving parts, but it's it's always important to remember like why you're doing it. You're you're helping that that grandparent be able to bend down and pick up their their grandkid. Like it's just the reason behind it and did you like I know you, you talked about you got into the commercial side mm-hmm. did, was it a little more fulfilling like being closer to the to the actual market with it like how, how close did you get to it I guess yeah, for, for sure mm-hmm. and, and and again you know it's not for everybody I mean you know some finance accountants you know they're they're content to come into their office and and sit at their desk and, and mm-hmm. do analysis and and you know work in in the traditional accounting sense mm-hmm. um, you know, for me, uh, my personality is I, I want to be out where the action is and, and where the people are. Mm-hmm. But but you're exactly right, Tim, in, in that the closer you get to the action, the more that you can actually see what your product is doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that included for me, you know, going to the OR and, and being a part of the uh, the surgery process. Now, I didn't scrub in, but... <laughs> But I was in the OR, you know, outside the sterile field, watching our products go into patients and, and knowing that that patient is going to, uh, to have a different outcome of life, you know, starting tomorrow. Now, they're mm-hmm. going to have to rehab. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, it also helped, I think, and, and this would be one of the encouragements I'd give folks that are in the finance uh, arena, 
is the more that you can understand the actual transactional flow and how that product actually is moving to the market and, and being consumed, the more that you can actually be a business partner um, to the business okay. and, and helping other other parts of the organization think about how they might do things in a in a different manner that could potentially turn into a different financial outcome. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a uh, you know business partner is a uh, a term or a uh, a title a phrase that uh, that we created you know back in my biomet days and. You know, I, I think it's something, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that, um, you know, more, more and more organizations, you know, whether it was HR, whether it was legal, uh, they wanted to be business partners, just yeah. like finance is doing. And, mm-hmm. and I think it caused people to, uh, to really think about the business in a different way, rather than more of a, uh, a narrow, myopic view of just their area of responsibility. Sure. That's a good way to look at it, though, like, see the end result and how you best fit in with that. <clears throat> yeah to be the best complement to that business. That, that's exactly right. And it's so much more fulfilling. Yeah. I, I think if, yeah. if again, you, you can see what, what's going on, and, and that doesn't have to just be the product mm-hmm. um, or, or the, where the product's being consumed. Even going you know, into the sourcing area and, and understanding you know, who are your vendors and, and how are they producing your product. And, and I remember you know, one, of the, one of the neatest projects I think that I was ever put on was back in my Zimmer days, and you know we we had a, a consulting firm come in, and they were going to help us do better buying of our metal, our metal, our, our chrome cobalt and titanium. Okay. And uh, and we were we were a fraction of of what was being consumed out in the marketplace for metal and cobalt chrome. I mean, uh, or titanium and cobalt chrome, and the vast majority of that's being consumed in aerospace or, or just, you know, very, very different industries. Sure. But what it was actually um, A.T. Carney that, that came in and helped us. And what they helped us to really understand is if you go to the plant, that one plant that's actually supplying you, you're actually a bigger part of that one plant potentially than you would have ever imagined. And so your, your consumption from them could be very, very important. Mm-hmm. And so you may have more leverage on that one plant or maybe that division than you could have ever thought that you would. Now, mm-hmm. as an industry, you, you probably don't move the needle right. in, in most anything that you buy. But if you, if you take it back to the, to the source of where things originate, you can really learn a lot. And, and frankly, you can also learn through the process that, that maybe something that you're demanding or something that you're requiring is adding a lot of cost to the yeah. product. Well, if, it, if it's something you have to have, it's necessitated, then you, you just got to bear the cost. But maybe you're specking something in a manner that, that you're costing yourself a lot of money and you really don't have to have that spec met. Huh. Yeah. So, so again, lots of different angles for, for finance folks to, uh, to really get mm-hmm. inside the business. Sure. Yeah. And, and with, with all the orthopedics, what I don't know if you saw much of this side, but were there any instances where, hey, we've gotten recommendations from such, such, and such doctor that they would like to see this implemented with this hip or this knee because they think it might move better or help mobilize their whatever specific joint better? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, in the orthopedic space, particularly, 
um, surgeons have a, a heavy, heavy voice or a, a loud voice in the development process. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, many of the, uh, the products are um, bear royalties um, to those designing surgeons ah, that are okay. on, on the teams. Yeah. Um, Smart on them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. You know, it's, it's another added source. Now, I would also tell you that, you know, back in the, the investigation time when the Department <clears throat> of Justice came in and, and um, accused the orthopedic companies of, of having too close a relationship with the surgeons, um, you know, I think all of us went on the offensive to, to, to really demonstrate the, uh, the very valuable input that they provide. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Because to your point, Colin, I mean, who's, who's better to say than as to how an implant should, should actually function than the surgeon themselves that, that's putting it in. Right, yeah. Right? yeah. yeah. Both sides need to be educated about the other side as much as possible. It's an important alliance. Yeah, the, sure. the other piece, I, I, a little bit off, off tangent, but you know, thinking about what, what do people generally think about when they think about orthopedics, they think about the device itself, uh, the implant, you know, whether it's the femoral or whether it's the tibial <clears throat> plate, but it's it, the implant itself that's going into the body. And, and what do engineers often want to, to be associated with? They want to be associated with that implant because mm -hmm. that's where the action is. But I would tell you that the, the other things that we learned as we continue to, and we continue to, to look at, is it's also the, in the delivery systems and how you, you put implants in. So one of the very expensive costs in orthopedics is the surgical um, tools that are actually used to prepare the anatomy for implantation okay and and you know historically i would tell you engineers that might be where you start but that that's not where you want to get away from as fast as you can but but now as as implants have, have really largely been perfected in many ways the way that that um, companies can see a differentiation come is through their their uh, technology on on the instrumentation mm -hmm. and and that's where i would tell you the finance folks can also be you know, invaluable in helping the business to understand that the cost of that instrumentation is horrendously expensive to the and burdensome to the system, and um, so that that's also just just another added area where if you get outside of your your office mm -hmm. and and really get out where the action is, you're you're really going to be mm -hmm. able to add a lot more value. Yeah. I was always excited when I worked in finance, whenever we'd have either the town hall meetings or, yeah. or whenever the salespeople would come in and educate us on the products. Like, and even like when I was working at Depew, whenever I would need a break from my desk or, or go take walks, I would always walk through the plant because I just always loved just like being there because they, you can, anybody can walk through there whenever they want. That's right. You can like see them creating things and it's, it's really cool. And I also like what you said about the other like surgical device part of it because I actually interned at Ethicon, which is part of Johnson Johnson over in New Jersey, and that's Ethicon's forte is the the surgical devices. So there really is a lot that goes into it. So the other thing I think that comes from walking around is you learn a lot about yeah. the yeah. business. You know, mm -hmm. you, you hear, you know, I got my MBA by walking around. Well, there's there's some truth to that, but the the other great facet of that is is you develop relationships. And and you learn about other people. You learn about their role in the organization. And I, I just can't tell you how many times that, you know, I would see something appear in the results of the financials and it just didn't make sense. And, you know, find your way out onto the floor. Why are we running the scrap that we're running? Yeah. Or why are we running these un unfavorable variances that we're running? Well, 
if you've made a, an association or made a, a relationship, developed a, a relationship with that operator that's running that machine, they're going to be a lot more apt to uh, to roll up their sleeves and and show you what what's going on. Mm -hmm. Versus if you sh you come down there, you know, cold turkey and, and say, you know, what the heck is going on? You we, we see all this scrap coming out of your area. Sure. Um, so it just there's there's so much benefit to, to getting away from the desk. Uh, yeah. You know, there's also responsibility to, to get your work done, mm -hmm. but um, but I think there's huge, huge benefit. Yeah. yeah, and I had that when there was a time I worked for Rolls-Royce, and I was primarily uh, going back and forth between two plants. They were right across the street, so you just pull out of the parking lot, drive through a light, and you turn right again. And it, it was fun to see the main one I was at, uh, I was doing a fixed asset audit that summer is an internship and it was cool because i had like khakis tucked in like it was biz cash you know yeah. and there were sometimes uh operators or tool makers where i saw that adversity they thought i was another salary guy <laughs> so i was like okay i really need to introduce myself in a different light because i'm i know nothing yeah. and i need their help but they think i'm one of them quote unquote so yeah. I started to make relationships with people like, hey, I'm just here for the summer. I'm doing a, an asset audit. Yep. You're a professional. I don't know what I'm looking for. Uh, could you help me find some? And I would have a little sheet. Yep. And, you know, you'd start talking to guys and like, yeah, you know, they laid us off on this tool, but that's necessary for this. So that didn't make sense. And so I'd learn yep. the problems they saw with higher up decision making that they didn't see because yep. they're not on the floor. Yep. Uh, there was one guy, he's like, these safety guards that you guys put in, you know, he thought I was one of the guys that made that choice. I'm right. like, yeah, okay, what about it? He goes, it does more harm than good. One guy cut his finger off because he had to angle in such a way to get around the guard rather than do what he knows how to do it. Yeah. And it altered his process and he cut a finger off. And mm -hmm. so like you hear the, the small things that are big to those people, but right. the higher ups don't, don't know. So that's interesting where it's like walking around it is the key to learning the ins and outs. That's absolutely, and and I think, you know, one of one of the uh, the most influential people in my life um, was my father, uh, and my father's been gone almost thirty years. But um, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about a lesson that he taught me. And you know, it's, it's interesting, Colin. My my father actually started on a line um, back in in the day at Kaiser Aluminum. And uh, they, they made can-ins, aluminum can-ins. And the thing that I thought at the time that, that I, well, I guess the thing I really didn't understand and appreciate was how much a man of the people he really was because of what he had come from. And, and it's a lot along the lines of what you described, that if you can develop a rapport or show people that, that you put your pants on one leg at a time just like they do, mm -hmm. Boy, they open up and, and offer so much view into the uh, uh, the business that you're never going to get if they they think that you're too high and mighty to uh, to sure. listen. Yeah. So, uh, one thing I was curious. So you you've gone from you know the public accounting route to CFO CEO, and I'm interested in when you get to that high up stage. You know, your CEO CFO CEO. What are some of the challenges that you know, outside looking in, it's like, oh, he's this big way, you know, he's in charge of all this. But challenge wise, what does that look like? And kind of the steps that maybe people don't see of like, yeah, there's a lot that goes into this. It's not just a willy nilly, I say do this and that, and then I get paid a bunch. Yeah. 
you know, one, one of the things that I would tell you that it's a challenge is, is just being reminded that, that people do look at you as the boss. And, um, you know, I think you're, you're reminded a lot of times cause they, they think you have all the answers and, uh, and I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've told people that, you know, look at, look at my bookshelf. There's, there's no three ring binder up there that says answers. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, it, I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just doesn't exist. I mean, what, what does exist that's maybe different over the course of time is experience. And that's, that's really what defines, you know, I think the, the delta between, you know, someone that's, that's more junior in their title versus someone that's more senior mm. uh, is, is the experience that they accumulate. Now, hopefully they're, they're not only just, you know, punching the clock and, and gaining hours of experience, but they're gaining credible experience through um, both the things they're doing, but also the leaders that they're learning from. Mm. Um, but I think the other thing that, that I'm, I'm reminded is as you journey, you know, through your career, is the decision making gets harder, mm. um, and and if you think about it, if it's an easy decision, anybody can do it, right? So by the time you get to be, you know, the COO or the CEO, the only thing that's landing on your desk for the most part are decisions that that somebody else doesn't want to make, <laughs> and they don't want to make them often because they're hard, yeah. because there are consequences associated with those decisions. And, um, and so I think you've, we've all heard the phrase, it's lonely at the top. Mm-hmm. And that's true. It is lonely at the top, but it's hard at the top as mm-hmm. well. And, um, and one of the best stories I've ever um, heard told was um, actually at, at Depew, Tim. One, one day, one of the, uh, the former leaders was doing a town hall meeting, and somebody from the shop was brave enough to raise their hand and say, why is it that you make as much money as you make? Put them on the and, spot, and the yeah. uh, the leader, you know, did that 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 pause, reflect, and then he came back with such a brilliant answer. He said, um, "Are you a basketball fan?" And the guy said, "Yeah." He said, "You know who Michael Jordan is?" And uh, the guy said, "Yes, sir. I I know who Michael Jordan is." He said, "How many Michael Jordans are there in the world?" The guy said, "Well, there's only one Michael Jordan." <laughs> he said, "Well, how many talented kind of?" professional basketball players like Michael Jordan are there and he said well there are a few more but but again not not that many yeah. and then then the leader said well what I do I'm not Michael Jordan but I'm Michael Jordan like not everybody can do what I do and there are a, a supply and demand uh, ratios that, yeah. that apply and he said I'm not saying what you do is any less important because we need you to make product but there are a lot of people frankly that can actually run your machine huh. um, but there aren't a lot of people that can step into the shoes that i i wear every day and make the decisions and, and do the things that i do every day and it's it's frankly because i've paid the price and yeah. i've done the things i've done and i just thought it was such a brilliant way to take a, a very awkward and difficult question it yeah. could have been, you know, very confrontational, uh-huh. and th- this leader just calmly walked him through it, and it, it was just, it was really inspiring yeah. to uh, to watch uh, a leader do that. Mm-hmm. And that's like humbling to hear too, I think, because that's some for some people maybe a harder pill to swallow. Yeah, 
like, how do you know I can't do what you do or something like that. But yeah. for him to describe it like in that term of the Michael Jordan, it's yeah. like, that's yeah. why. Yeah, and I, th- yeah. I think, again, you know, whether it's Michael, whether it's Tiger, sure. you know, a lot of people, whether you're an athlete or, or sports enthusiast or not, you've probably seen enough, heard enough that he could really relate. And, and what was really neat was to see the whole town hall that, that flinched when the gentleman asked the question all just <laughs> yeah. kind of relax as the uh, the answer was given. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That's true leadership. Yeah, it's a great answer and a relatable answer too. Put it in a way that you could understand. And I was going to ask you, so you obviously had to make a lot of tough decisions that not a lot of people wanted to make. What, what kind of guided your decision making? Is there anything that you fell back on, whether it's a, a decision making process you, you did, people you trusted, what kind of guided you in those tough moments when you had to make decisions? You know, um, I, I would tell you, this may sound like I'm just making up the answer, but you know, I, I hope it's, it's really God that, mm-hmm. uh, that enters into the equation um, when, I'm, when I'm really making the hardest decisions um, and um, trying to make the, uh, the hard calls. Um, and, and I think the golden rule is, is what's always on my mind, you know, do unto others as you'd want done to you. Um, and, you know, I think that that's what the Bible tells us is, mm-hmm. you know, love thy neighbor, right? Um, you know, love thy enemy as well. But, but I think remaining humble um, through it all and being respectful. Um, there are decisions that, you're, that um, you know, top brass have to make that are really, really not fun. Um, you know, the hardest of those is, is when you've got to take a reduction in the workforce. Mm. And, um, you know, I think, you know, not everybody's a Jack Welch fan. Um, I, I, I personally never had the opportunity to be around Jack Welch, um, but I've read plenty of Jack Welch books. And I think it's interesting that, you know, people ask Jack, you know, if you could do something different, what would you do different? And he often says, you know, I would have moved faster with people decisions. Well, Jack's known already for being hatchet man Jack. You know, he he took more people out of the business, it seemed like, than, than anybody, you know, prior to him. But what Jack always said was what got him through decisions that were really tough, impacting people um, that he was taken out of the business, was if he didn't make that hard decision, the people that, that were surrounded by that person that what that wasn't performing they were being impacted as well mm. and so you know as a leader i think making those courageous calls um and you know taking that courageous stance it, it's not easy but but i think that's true leadership and that's what people i think do look up to now if you do that and you've got a bunch of dead bodies in in your wake that's, that's you know <laughs> right. pardon the phrase but but that's not a good a good sign of a leader um, but if but if you've done it with respect and integrity, um, I I think that people really really do admire that and and they'll follow leaders like that. Mm-hmm. Did you ever? Well, I'm sure you did. But are you able to describe a decision, maybe two that were really hard, aside from cutting workforce, where one is like that didn't go exactly the way I wanted, and one that was like that was a risky one, but that that worked out. Yeah, um, I'm sure there are plenty of those that that, uh, that didn't work out exactly how I thought it was going to. Um, you know, I think probably the um, probably the thing I would think 
is is most prevalent in my mind. I've I've come into organizations where we we had a lot of accounting staff. We we didn't necessarily have a lot of that business partner mindset, that finance you know acumen that I talk about. Okay. And so um, I think there have been times where I've felt like I had to move quickly. Um, you know, the, I don't know if you've, you've read the, uh, the Michael Watkins book, the first 90 days. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I always, always feel like I've got that 90 day, you know, window that I've, I've got to demonstrate why, why this company hire me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Colin, the, the thing that I'm reminded is taking the, the time to listen to people mm-hmm. rather than just shooting from the hip and, and thinking that your experience is, is the guide that that's going to get you to the right answer. That's probably what I think about that I, I maybe have, have been too quick to think, well, I got this. I've, I've seen this before. Sure. Um, and then I look back and I think, gosh, if I would have collaborated more, if I had listened longer, maybe we would have ended up with a, a, even a better or a different outcome. Hmm. Um, so it's that fine line. I mean, yeah. I do think that there are only two ways that people can move or businesses can move this these days. You can either be falling behind or, or moving ahead. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's a, a, a standing still um, mm-hmm. opportunity out there these yeah. days. Yeah, John Wooden said, be quick, but don't hurry. That's what he yeah. like I said. I, I yeah. kind of speaks to me and kind of reminds me of what you're saying there. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, so I want to go, I want to move to the time in your life when you were at Biomet mm-hmm. and you were being acquired by Zimmer and you, you made that tough decision to, to exit the company. What, what did that moment look like to you? Like, what were you feeling during that moment? And I guess just describe what that moment was like, because I'm sure it was a tough decision. Yeah. You know, what's, what's interesting is, is I wish it would have been just a moment in time, (laughs) but, um, I don't know if you guys would know or would recall, but that transaction took over a year to be approved. Way longer. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so from the time that we knew that uh, that Zimmer had had desi- told told the street that they were looking to and, and desiring to buy us, to the time that the Trade Commission actually approved that transaction, I think it was pushing on fourteen months, if, wow. if my memory serves right. But it, it was a long, long period of time, and so. You know, the first six months were, were, were kind of a blur. I, I think it was, you know, business as usual to a large degree. We had integration teams that were starting to think about how we bring the businesses together, how we um, commonize the systems and the, and the, the processes. Um, you know, my role at the time, I remember my boss saying, um, you're going to let other people worry about that, that integration stuff. I need you to just stay focused on, on our current business. Because one of the fears that, that we had is if that transaction didn't get approved, we'd have to go back and, and take back over the business and 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 run it. And yeah. and again, we were in the midst of going public, so we didn't want to lose the momentum right. that um, that we had built up to to get there. But I think the um, you know again the, the the matter of months versus the moment in time really gave me a lot of time to. Uh, to see what was happening, um, maybe even too much time to dwell on what was happening. But there, there came a point during that that time span where it became pretty apparent that um, that I wasn't going to end up with the role that I that I had had in the biomed organization. And I think what 
what was the um, the most important thing to me as a leader at that time was to continue to instill confidence in people that that this transaction is going to be the best thing you know for everybody and uh, so to put on that happy face every day um, when deep down inside there was a lot of churning going on you know where am I going to go what am I going to do you know how's this going to work out for me how's you know me 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 instead of thinking about you know what God's right there and God's got a plan um, be patient with that um, now I think that ironically um, probably the the one that was the most impacted in my family you know you might first think well it was probably my wife uh, thinking you know what well, how are we going to make this all work out and, and and my wife was a rock she was an absolute rock and my one of my biggest um, cheerleaders always has been but my daughter was the one that uh, that probably was the most in angst and and frankly the most upset um, that that I wasn't going to end up with a with a role um, when this thing was all said and done and I, and I think back about that and what I what I try to to think about was was I as rock solid at home with my disposition as I was at work? Because I, I don't think people necessarily saw that side of me at work because I, I think we continue to carry on and do great things. But did I, looking back, did I do something that, that gave my daughter the feeling that I had been wronged? And, and if I did, you know, shame on me. But I think that there was also, you know, some pride factor that, hey, this is happening to my dad and it's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as a family, um, talking about things and, and really processing things, you know, as a family unit, I think that that, that probably doesn't happen near often enough uh, these days. Um, you know, whether it's somebody, you know, in the process of a, of a job change or a job loss or just just life. I mean. How often do families sit down and break bread at the table these days uh, in the evenings? Um, yeah. Not as often as they used to. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a business back in Warsaw that um, that uh, does crop insurance for for farmers, and uh, I remember I was at a um, at a um, ag breakfast, and uh, one of their leaders got up and and he and he said one of the most profound things. He said, "You know, our business is a business." that um, still allows the family to, to work in the business together. Huh. And we put our hands together working on, on the earth and doing what we do every day. Um, and, he, and his comment was, you know, that's a really, really rewarding experience. And, uh, and, he, and he topped that off by saying, you know, it's, it's really fitting as to how many farming families still get together around the table. And, and break bread together. Now, he went on to say that that doesn't mean that we all get along every day. Um, you know, we still have our differences. But, um, you know, I'm off on a little bit of a tangent, but I, I guess I would just encourage people to, uh, to really slow down um, and, and take that time. Um, and I think that, that that leads to to so many benefits versus some of the challenges that, that society, you know, is dealing with you know, mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that, that transitions me into my, my next question is, can you, so obviously when you took the job with Steinway, mm-hmm. you, you lived in New York. So how, like the family dynamic that you're talking about, yeah. 
describe what that experience is, was like because you lived there by yourself for a I little did. bit, right? Yeah. yeah can I you did. kind of explain to me how? Because yeah. I can tell it's very important to you to have the the communication with your family and the togetherness. Yeah. What was it like doing that and this kind of the sacrifice you make? Can you describe that? Yeah, the first word that comes to my mind is it was lonely. Mm. It was lonely, mm-hmm. um, and and I think I've I've probably said it a million times in my uh, my career, but I'm a much better preacher than I am a doer. So, you know, that, <laughs> that speech I just talked about of what you should do with your family, you know, as Tim well points out, but you moved to New York and left your family back in Indiana. That that's exactly right. Um, you know, chasing that career, um, chasing that that CFO position. Um, but I would tell you the um, the thing that, that that gave me the um, the courage to do it first off is I had a again a wife that was right there in my corner and saying you should do this. This is what you've always wanted. Um, now the reality was, you know, she didn't necessarily want to uh, to be a part of a, a Manhattan uh, environment and. And I learned that, mm-hmm. you know, probably the hard way over the the couple years where we lived apart. But I think the um, the thing that I would say is that decision didn't come lightly. But what really helped us as a family unit be able to stay connected is that that darn cell phone and, and the texting <laughs> and yeah. Um, and as much as we complain about that thing, um, myself included, you know, the, you can turn that email um, part off at, at some point. But but the ability to, to ring through or to text through and to, to get messages back and forth from, from your family, your loved ones, uh, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- I guess my point is it was a really, really... Um, interesting couple year time period for me um you know the great thing about living on my own is and and being in a in a <laughs> industry i had no experience in uh, in the way of music and, and pianos um is i had lots of time on my hands to to really you know sink myself into work mm-hmm. um, now there's a balance to be struck there um you know you still need to keep your health up and and uh, you know, not let it just completely self-absorb you. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place, I guess, with my answer. But I, I yeah. would I would just really come back and around and say that um, it can work. It it's probably not the the most optimal way to live a life, um, but you, you just have to stay conscious as to what's important to you and mm-hmm. uh, talking to my family and and connecting with my family you know, routinely is, is a very, very important part of my life. Yeah. So, so when you were in New York, did, uh, you guys plan visits? Did you come back every month, two months? Did they visit you in Manhattan? Yeah. The, the family came out, you know, we did the, uh, the New York tour of the, uh, you know, Macy's day parade and, and, uh, we, we never did watch that ball drop from, from the, uh, um, from Times Square, we 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 ultimately decided standing out there for hours on end to uh, to watch you know a few seconds of a ball drop wasn't what what we really desired. With hundreds of thousands of your best friends, right? Right. <laughs> but um, you know, for the most part, I traveled back to Indiana on on Fridays um, about every other weekend. Okay. Um, and you know, as crazy as it sounds, it it was doable. You know, there was a direct flight out of South Bend to Newark, and uh, so I I'd, I'd fly. On Monday mornings out of South Bend, I'd leave you know anywhere between six and seven in the morning. I was generally um, in into Newark by eight, 
eight to nine o'clock in the morning. And I was, I was often in my office by 10 o'clock on Monday mornings. Um, Many cases I was beating people that, that actually lived there because <laughs> they were still stuck in traffic. Yeah, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah, right, right. But uh, Friday night, you know, there was an 8.30 p.m. flight out back to South Bend. And, you know, generally Debbie would pick me up at the at the airport and, you know, be, be home and be in my own bed by midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, it makes for long weeks. It sure. really does. Um, and, again, God got to love the fact that you can travel the way that that you can pretty comfortably but um you know long periods of time do do incredible things to the mind you know they, they can really keep you focused or they can really keep you distracted whichever way you you sure. let your mind wander and and as a music guy myself so you said you sunk right into it because you had more time did you ever pick up piano or any other instrument yeah colin i i um because I know I had, Steinway is like creme de la creme of pianos. Absolutely is, and and I had every intention when I went out there to uh, to to learn how to play the piano. Uh-huh. Um, I as a kid, I remember that um, I thought I was going to play the drums, and I I remember my father saying, "Well, I'm going to buy you a drum pad, and if you are still beating on it after 30 days, we'll think about whether we buy you a drum set." <laughs> And, uh, and he was 100% right. Um, after about two weeks, it, it was nowhere to be found. Um, so sitting still is not necessarily one of my strong suits. And, and so as a result, I, I really didn't pick up the, uh, the piano. But what I did pick up is the arts and, and being able to, to travel around the, the great city in New York. You know, we probably had upwards of 100 plus pianos scattered around the city on loan. That um, you know, any given night, you know, we could we could pick up the phone during the day and say, hey, I'd like to come to this event, or I'd like to go to that event, or oh, this really cool. show, or that show, and wow. and generally there there was a ticket at the door, you know, waiting for us. I wouldn't have gotten any work done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it was good. it was special. The the other thing I would say that um, that we did at the time that was really um, for me, being a non-musician that was unique, is we were in the midst of bringing out a new player piano concept at Steinway. And um, so that, that was fascinating to, to see this, this piece of art, as we call it. And, and I don't know if you guys would have any reason to know this, but a Steinway grand piano takes upwards of a year to make. Oh, wow. Uh, I did not know and, that. And create. You never uh, guessed and that. It truly is a piece of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so traditionally... Who, who's bought those pieces of art? Musicians, pianists. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, why would you want a piano if you don't play the piano? Well, um, what we were trying to do was to, uh, to change that mindset and to go after what we called cultured achievers that weren't musicians and try and attract them to this piece of art uh, called a Steinway piano and, and allow them to use an iPad that, that connected through an app through a, a piano that we called the Spirio to play that piano uh, as though, you know, one of our recording artists were, mm. was there sitting on the bench playing. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's taken off. It, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, gone completely viral and, and crazy um, because, you know, musicians still want to play the piano, but, mm. but those that, that don't have the capability, what's, what was probably one of the most interesting things is historically two thirds of all pianos purchased have been, um, the decision has been made by the female in the house. Hmm. Um, hmm. 
the wife, the mother, you know, or the one that's taken the kids to have piano lessons. Yeah. As soon as we went to the Spirio and we offered this new concept and we now had an iPad, which, you know, I would liken to a gadget and we handed that gadget to that, that father or that man as they walked in the showroom, all of a sudden they could drive the piano, they huh. could play the piano. And uh, we, we saw that invert um, mm. almost overnight. So, you know, interesting trends yeah. that happen yeah. in, in industries or in markets and in business. And, and that was one from a marketing standpoint. I don't think we ever, you know, would have guessed that that would, that would take place, but it was, it was a key learning. Yeah, and, and I've been removed from pianos for a little bit, but uh, I don't know if you saw if, if Steinway did this. I, I think they do at least uh, more modern styles where you can play it, have it recorded, and it plays itself back so you yeah. can hear how it goes. Did, yeah. did you see part of that process at all? So that, that process was evolving. So, okay. when, when, so when I was there, we were only focused on the, the record element uh -huh. um, for playback purposes. So we were creating the playlist, if you will, you know, and just, just kind of like a Pandora kind of yeah. playlist um, that, that was Steinway's own proprietary um, playlist. And we, we knew that the next step in the evolution was to be able to to allow people to record their own stuff and and then play it back. And yeah. if you think about you know how you teach and how you learn, um, it, it was going to be a really really you know great way to uh, to sell more pianos. And that's what we were after when it was yeah. all said and done. Yeah, because I remember when I took lessons because I took took ten years of lessons of that and then guitar as well. But my piano teacher, she had two pianos side by side. Hers had that feature. I don't remember what brand. I know the one I always played on, I think it was a Yamaha. Yeah, she might have had an upper class. I don't know if it was a Steinway, though. But yeah. And getting ready for a recital or a competition, I would use that one. We'd play it back, and then you can hear, hear the, the problem area. Yeah. And, and we're like, okay, yeah. hammer this, yep. and mm. then we'll do it again. So. Yeah, yeah it, it's really cool. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm off on a little bit of a tangent. It's but all it's, good. Uh, You're good. It's, um, it, it's interesting that... Record, uh, player pianos have been around forever, right? You know, you remember the old black and white movies where there was a player piano with the rolls. But mm -hmm. um, this technology was so good that it would capture the uh, um, the intensity of the hammer hitting the string and the speed um, to such a specificity that that um, the the musician themselves said that they had never heard themselves played back in the with the um, the accuracy mm -hmm. that we were able to capture. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And that's what made the Spirio Spirio and made it different. I was going to say, it's yeah. such a minute detail, but it, yeah. it means so much to a, a professional yeah. pianist. Because yeah. they I, crave I, feedback. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I, yeah. I, I literally saw pianists um, tear up from, from hearing themselves play. Wow. Because if you think about a musician, it's one of the first times that, well, it's the only time that they had actually heard themselves play live in that fashion. Now they had huh. heard audio playback, sure, but they had never heard a piano playback in the manner that uh, yeah. that, that had been recorded. Yeah, oh, that's incredible. So, that's yeah. awesome. So throughout all all the the roles you've been in, management roles, things like that, uh, a lot of people, I think, or that I've seen and experienced myself, have left roles due to their boss or their boss's boss, someone who wronged them. And I think managing people is is so much harder than those who do it are given credit for. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what you think some of the 
the key components to manage people well and do it the right way because there are a lot of people who are managing others that maybe shouldn't be yeah uh, or not as good as delegating or delivery of communication how they present so what are some things that you've seen work or not worked where it's like this you need to have if you're in charge yeah I think the, the first answer that comes to mind are, are three things, communicate, communicate, communicate. But, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, there, there's certainly more to that. But I, I think first and foremost is, is really setting a vision um, and making sure that there is an understanding of, of what their role is and what the expectations are. And then what you're going to do as a leader to help support that. Mm. Um, and again, a much better preacher than I probably am a doer. I, I hope that I... I I carry some of that out uh, as well, but um, but I think you know having that understanding is paramount to uh, to having a good relationship, and and I think your your point's exactly on. Uh, you know, a lot of times people don't leave bad companies; um, they leave bad bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'll stay in a bad company if they've got a great boss, and uh, so I think that's a testament to what leadership really is all about. Sure. There are a lot of tough businesses out there um, that, you know, frankly, people could go find better environments uh, of job satisfaction. But uh, if they're working for a, a really good leader that they're learning from, um, that, that's supporting them, um, that that's a really, really important element of, of you know, coming to work every day and feeling engaged. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that's another term. There, there are surveys out there that you know, engagement indexes that the companies want to to measure themselves to see how engaged that that team member really is, and uh, the more engaged they are, the more apt they are to uh, to stay in in place. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the impact that your father had on you as as a mentor. Can you can you think of anyone else in your professional experience that's had maybe a special impact on you, whether that's a boss? a mentor, a colleague, someone you've worked with that you've been able to really learn from or take strategies from? Yeah, you know, there are so many, Tim. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to mention names because I, I, if anybody were to ever stumble into this, I wouldn't want uh, someone to think that I, I actually just singled somebody out. But I, I would tell you, um, I've been really blessed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked for a lot of really great companies that had a lot of really great leaders. Um you know, I've had folks that, that have a, an appreciation um, for what it is that, that I bring to the table, and they've reciprocated by teaching me what they bring to the table. Hmm. I, I had a boss once that, that was, and I've had multiple bosses that have had engineering background, but um, because engineering is, is a pretty prevalent uh, background for, for leaders of, right. of businesses. But um, I remember one leader in particular that uh, that was that was his expertise was was really understanding the nuts and bolts of how a product's built, how it's designed, how it's meant to be made. But his his opening um, sabo to me was, "You're the finance guy. You're going to keep me, you know, out of the soup when it comes to you know our financial performance, and I'm going to teach you." you know, what it is about how we should think about designing products and bringing products to the market. And, and so that complement is, is really, really, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, an important element. I would also say that, you know, I've had bosses that um, have been more caring about, you know, their, their people than, than others. Um, but, 
there's there's one boss in particular that um, that I've always said you know a lot of people want to be like Mike I always wanted to be like this boss and and again I won't use that that individual's mm-hmm. name but you know this this person just had such a such an ability to be able to just cut through all the the the, the stuff all the all the red tape or you know all the morass of what's going on in the day and just completely make hard things simple and uh, and that's I think that again is is the the real epitome of a leader is is to uh, to take that complex environment and really you know synthesize it and and you know make it simple mm-hmm. um, but yeah I've, I would just say you know the, the bosses I've had all the way growing going through my career whether it was back in public accounting or you know, being out in, in industry um, it's just a wide variety, but the ones that I've probably been the most attracted to are the ones that, uh, again, have a, a humility about themselves, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's not all about them, you know. Right. The, the famous Rick Warren, you know, quote opening, you know, salvo in the uh, the purpose driven life. It, it's not all about you, uh, or or it's not about you. Yeah. yeah, I like what you say about the humility and what you said about knowing the people who work for you, what their skills are and what they're good at. Cause they, they like, even though they may not be as quote unquote higher up as you in management, they may know things or be better at certain things than even you are. And Absolutely. I, and it takes a good leader to recognize like how to use that effectively to help them, to, for them to help you out and for you to help them out stuff that they don't know. Yeah. The humility I, about I, it. I, I've, I've told so many you know, new hires, you know, fresh out of college that um, they're three times smarter than I am. I mean, three <laughs> times smarter than I am. But again, the differentiation is back to what I said earlier. It's, it's experience. You know, right. I've, I've got, you know, these bags under my eyes and these gray hairs coming out of my head because, you know, I've, I've been in the game longer than they have. But but as far as their technical expertise, their ability to, you know, move data around and, and do things, they're, they're loads smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. But um, but you're exactly right. It's yeah. it's it's just trying to acknowledge that, but also figure out how do you lever that. Yeah. How mm-hmm. do you, how do you how do you bring the complement of the two of those together? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when when we talked on the phone last, because uh, I want to kind of get into this some as well, you're now doing some interesting things with mental health. Yeah. Uh, so I do want to kind of touch on that since a big part of the show we we talk mental health and mm-hmm. and mood and what what affects that mindset and things of that nature so if you can kind of yeah. take us down that road too because that's that's more current right now for you as well yeah, yeah. thank thanks for remembering that um so i i'm actually in in the uh, um leadership uh, group uh that, that's going through here in, in fort wayne uh leadership fort wayne is is what it's referred to and you know there are 55 of us in the class and you know, at 55 years old, I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, most of the things that we're learning from a leadership perspective, I, I would have command of, or at least knowledge of, but, mm-hmm. but I've learned things along the way. But one of the things that, that we're expected to do coming out of that, or being a part of that program is to, uh, to pick a project that's going to impact or have an impact on our community. And, um, and so there have been six or eight of us that have gotten together and, and we've really been focused on, um, mental health, but, but even more specifically suicide rates and um, trying to figure out, you know, what are the things that we can do um, that, that potentially can have an impact on the mental health of our community and, and you know, lessen the suicide rate. Uh, it's absurd to me 
that um, that we have the number of suicides that we have. But I but I think the more that we learn about what causes people to get to that stage, the more that we can appreciate, you know, why that that rates as high as it is. Um, you know, there there are a lot of a lot of stressors out there these days. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's an area right now that I have a, a, a great deal of growing passion around. And, and there's an organization here in the Fort Wayne area um, called Remedy Live. And uh, Remedy Live is is uh, an organization that goes out into the school systems and uh, does a, a get schooled tour. And, you know, it's it's, it's kind of like a, a, um, a concert uh, going on. You know, they get loud music and get the kids all riled up and get cool. them excited. And, and the next thing you knew that, no, they've got their phones out and they're doing some polling and that, mm-hmm. that polling are questions that, that really give uh, the administration of the school insights into, you know, maybe some of the challenges that, that their, their student body faces, you know, questions like, you know, have you ever used drugs? Have you ever thought about using drugs? Um, do you use alcohol? Um, have you ever contemplated, you know, suicide, um, you know, cutting, you know, there, there are just a number of different things that, uh, that Remedy Live goes about their, their business and, and asking these questions. And it's all anonymous in, in the way of you can't identify the, uh, the, the respondent, um, but you can accumulate this information and see inside that school do you have a prevalence of, of mental health issues that, that need to be dealt with? Mm-hmm. And, and that's such a, a genius way to do it to where it's, it's fun, it's interactive, and then yeah. you kind of guide them through this path of starting the one of the hardest conversations that nowadays might be hard to start. That's right. And, and it's just at least getting that conversation going because they, they might not want to talk to anyone about it. They might maybe feel ashamed about it or, or something or another, and that could lead down another dark hole. So uh, I think that's so creative in, in the fact of helping them also let it out a little bit. You, you, you're, it's brilliant. I mean, what you just said is, is so dead on. Uh, it, it is you know, people being ashamed. It is people being intimidated. It's, it's also people not knowing what to do yeah. with the condition that they have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, loneliness creeps in. Um, you know, I think I talked about stressors. I, I think that today's society, we're, we're such a um, want to uh, achieve society. And if, if you're not achieving, then you feel like you're failing. Um, and, you know, where, where I think that, that we lose sight sometimes is, you know, what does achievement really mean? And, and again, I won't go deeply spiritual on you, but but. If, if you have a relationship with our Lord and Savior um, and you know that by the grace of God you've been saved, you know, that should, I would think, bring a lot of comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, but so many folks these days, um, number one, they maybe don't have that relationship uh, with our Lord, but they also feel uh, compelled to, to perform because their perform their parents have been successful and they they compare themselves to their to their parents or they compare themselves to a classmate um, or or a, a co-worker and and that pressure is is daunting to people mm-hmm. and and it just leads to mental anguish 
And, and I think that that's the stressors that we're seeing in our society. And um, you know, I think employers that, that can, can really sniff that out and, and see that, that there are issues or schools that can s- sniff that out for their students mm-hmm. and be able to do something about it. That's how we're going to change, um, you know, this, this really, really, you know, horrific path that we're on right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and going to businesses, is that, uh, something down the line that Remedy Live is interested in doing, or are they primarily focused on schooling right now? Yeah. Or? Great, great question. So what, what, um, what we have done is connect with Remedy Live. As I said, they've got the mm-hmm. Get School Tour. That's already rolling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, um, Clinton Foppel, the, uh, um, co-founder of the, uh, the organization and the executive director has desired to do is, is to, to find a forum where he could take that message into businesses. Um, and so, you know, that's what we're helping him open the doors on. And, and so we're helping him to get in to businesses, do lunch and learns, um, pretty, pretty, you know, um, what's the word I want to say? Just very, very, uh, easy going. Um, and it's, it's more about conveying information and really teaching people about, uh, mental health and some of the, uh, the, the uh, things to look for, um, whether that's with a coworker or, or potentially with, with a child um, mm-hmm. or maybe yourself that you're experiencing. And, and I think it's trying to help people to realize that, that they're not on an island, uh, that mm-hmm. there are others that are going through the same. But the, the, the group that I'm a part of, we've, we've, um, we've started with some pilots at, uh, at some different companies. We, we had Clinton in to uh, ambassador uh, a month or two ago, and and again, he uses that same kind of polling uh, to capture some information and, and really get people thinking about some of the uh, uh, the aspects of mental health. Sure, sure, yeah. And going back to what you said about uh, kid, like kids, high school kids or middle school kids, and their parents, and I think it goes back to comparison is the root of depression sometimes. What what can parents do from like a parent perspective? What do you think is a healthy like strategy that parents can do to kind of yeah. create an environment where that comes into place for these kids and where they're thinking about that? Is there anything they can do? Yeah, there's a lot they can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing they can do is love on their kids. Yeah. You know, um, you know I, I, I'm sure that, you know, many of the, the listeners know of, of Gary Chapman and the five love languages. And, um, you know, each of us have, you know, one definitive love language that, that's stronger than another. But, you know, kids, when they're in a development stage, they need all five of those. We all, we all need some form of those five love languages. But um, loving on the kids and, and listening to the kids, um, spending quality time with the kids. Um, I mean, that's one of the love languages is quality time. You know, mm-hmm. some kids want gifts, some kids want words of affection, but a lot of kids, what they're loaning for right now is time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you see, you see families that are, that are trying to, uh, to make ends meet. You see both parents working, um, you know, do they sit down at the table together and break bread as we talked about a little earlier? Um, it doesn't happen as often as we'd like these days. Um, yeah. You know, even on the weekends, you know, we're, they're running to this soccer match or this tennis match or this, you know, sporting event or, or, or maybe, a, you know, music. Uh, those are all good things. I, I think keeping kids active mm-hmm. um, is a healthy thing, but there's a, a balance to be struck. 
And then I think the big thing is we talk about engagement at work. Well, you know, are you engaged in your kids' lives? Mm-hmm. Um, and are you listening? Um, you know, they get to be teenagers. It's, it's um, you know, it, it gets harder. Um, you know, parents, uh, I think kids look at them and I think they've got three heads or something. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think that the longer that, that a parent stays engaged, um, in the day-to-day uh, life of their children or their kids, um, the higher probability of success for those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, it, and it's gonna make for a happier life uh, when it's all said and done. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, really listening and um, you know, also trying to, to figure out, are you putting, you know, some undue pressure on your kids as a result of things you're asking about, things that you're expecting? Um, it's okay to have high expectations for, for your kids because you want them to be successful and, and you want them to uh, to have a good life. Um, but it's also okay for them to fail mm-hmm. um, at, at points. I mean, how do you learn the best? <laughs> Through failure. Right, right. right. Yeah. I, I, I guarantee you some of the uh, the most memorable times for me and impressionable times are, are where things didn't go exactly as I, I wanted them to go. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm interested in how much, you know, outside of the house, we have so much technology and so mm. much comparison is available every day, all day. Yeah. Uh, how much do you think that drives some of these kids to the point of no return? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Colin. And, and you know, I, I said earlier that, you know, my phone is, is my connection point with, with my family or my kids. Uh, a lot of times with them no longer being at home. Um but, you know, video games and, and all the things that, that um, the kids use these days, um, there, again, there's benefits to some of those things. I, I think some of our, our most renowned surgeons into the future are going to be kids that were um, big gamers uh, because they yearn, learned how to use joysticks. And there's going to be a lot of things that are done, you know, with joystick type technology. Mm, sure. But I think it's, it's finding that balance. And Rules are really hard um, to, you know, to, to put on, on kids. You know, you, you feel as though that uh, you're being restrictive. But I don't think there's anything wrong with um, limiting the amount of time that, that um, a kid has technology in their hands. Um, you know, let kids go out and play outside yeah. you know? no kidding yeah. go converse yeah. with one another yeah in person there's a concept yeah let them let them go explore i i was at a a conference i won't digress too long but i was at a conference a, a couple years ago when i was back in the the tool business and um there was a, a comedian that got up and and he talked about the the thing that was missing was just allowing kids to go out and and be kids mm-hmm. he said my god when i when i was a kid i used to you know take my bike and I'd ride my bike, I'd have a flat tire, I'd have to deal with a flat tire, I'd have to go to the service station and negotiate my way to, you know, the, the guy fixing my flat tire. Um, we used to build tree houses. He said, you know, we, we knew how to, uh, um, to go about finding scrap lumber. You know, we'd go to construction sites on the weekend and, uh, and we'd find things that, um, that would allow us to build tree houses. Um, he said, you know, there were times that we put um, finishing nails in our steps and, and realized that finishing nails don't hold boards <laughs> in, in, the, uh, in the tree. Um, but, but his whole point was learn by failing. <laughs> you learn by, by trying yeah. and you learn by doing. 
But if you're in the house all day long and, and you're just stuck on a, a joystick, um, not sure that that's, that's going to necessarily serve all the purposes of life. Mm-hmm. It's genius. I just love that approach too of how to get it started, at least starting there. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the other the other thing goes hand in hand with that is you know, um, you know, be that parent that that's out there in the yard and you you've got you know six neighbor kids and your kids you know that you're out you know playing flag football or or you're yeah. throwing the frisbee or or you're doing something. Um, you know, how cool is that that um, that that you've got all these kids now engaged in an activity mm-hmm. um, and and you just don't see that um, as often these days um, you see people packing up in a car and they're they're going off to this or going off to that um, yeah there's a lot of God's you know green space out there to uh, to be enjoyed yeah yeah, yeah speaking of green space that <laughs> golf course looks enticing <laughs> more of that that's why I put us down here Tim so you didn't have to stare out and see mind is always on the course <laughs> Even if it's in the back of the mind, it's always there. That's right. You got to. It's your happy place, man. It's mm-hmm. your your alone time. You need that too. But Tim, how you feel? I'm pretty I'm pretty good, man. I don't know if I have anything else. Or Bob, if there's something else you want to share. You're a great storyteller, man. I no, could listen yeah. to you for days. No. Thanks. Yeah. Let me I just want to end on one last question. What I mean, is there any advice you would give to let me say like a college student that's entering the real world that's yeah. going from a life of structure in school to a place where they have to actually go out and fail and learn in the real world. Anything, any advice you'd give to someone that's maybe not entirely sure what their next step is going into an unknown world? Anything yeah. you want to leave with? I'll, I'll give you a, a long version to that answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, first of all, I would tell you, you know, if you're in college, you know, presumably you've already, you know, chosen a path. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and say if you're in high school, uh, or you're in those pivotal years where you're trying to decide what you're going to do, pick 10 things that you want to be and go find 10 people that do those things and, and ask them to, to take you to lunch or, or ask if you can go to lunch with them. More often than not, you're going to get a free lunch. <laughs> and, and people love to talk about what they do. They, yeah. they absolutely yeah. do. And you're going to learn so much more by asking somebody that does it. And, and then you'll have perspective as you go to college. And instead of changing your major three times, maybe you'll only change it once or two, twice. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the other thing I would say for, for that college student that's coming out is um, it is competitive out there. Um, and, and you got to know that going in. Um, and so what are you going to do um, during the course of a day um, that really does make you stand out? Um, because that's that's generally what gets you ahead over the course of time. Now, again, if you want to be a steady trotter, then then again, maybe you don't have to listen to this advice. But but if you really want to differentiate yourself, how are you going to do something that that's different than than your peer? Hmm. And and that to me that is learning the business. It's it's getting out of the office um, or getting out of the chair and, and going and doing that walking around thing. It's you know it's it's getting out on the internet potentially in the evening and, and researching, you know, if you if you work in the orthopedic space and you work for one company, there are four others that you compete against. Go read their their reports. You know, what what are they doing? Um, what's happening in healthcare? But but again, being curious, I think takes you a long way. Now, at the same time, I would tell you, 
I think it's important to, to strike a balance. And, um, you know, we talked a little bit about mental health and, you know, how do you take care of yourself mentally? Um, again, you want to stretch your mind, but you also need to, to eat right. You need to take care of yourself from a, a physical um, perspective. And, you know, one of the things that I've not been tremendously great at, you know, throughout my life is, is sleep. Um, you know, I, I think I drive my wife crazy because I, I don't require as much sleep as, as the average person. But, but there are statistics out there that say sleep is important. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, it's trying to find that balance that, that makes you as effective as you can be. Um, but curiousness is, is I think the, uh, the real differentiator and find people that are really, really profound and deep, deep smarted in what it is that you want to be deep smarted in and, and go after that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. And ask questions. I, I think, you know, the, the, uh, um, the, the, the leader of our business, um, 71 going on 72 year old man that um he's still learning i mean he, and, and he's still so curious at, at and not that that's old but but i just find it fascinating i mean most 71 72 year old folks are, are probably enjoying the the fruits of their labor retired somewhere and uh and our our founder is is still every day driving hard and and uh and learning and and i think that that that's something that is a great life lesson. You can always be a continuous learner. And, um, and I think that that will differentiate you for a lifetime. Great. For sure. Boom. Well, uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time being on the show. Uh, we'll have to do a round two. Have we, to. we have to. We want to come back. Yeah. This is <laughs> awesome. next time you're in Indy. Yeah. yeah. It's my pleasure. Yeah, for anytime. sure. Yeah. So. And, uh, yeah, certainly, uh, appreciate you guys, um, doing what you're doing and, um, you know, Hope, hope a few of the words um, can can spark something for somebody. Mm -hmm. They all spark something for me. So. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>